The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Well, tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? Then crown your ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and I am here with... Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast. However, this is a very special holiday episode of The Gauntlet and will be our first episode that is, in fact, not a double feature. But that doesn't mean we don't have a lot to talk about because the topic for today is long movies. And as previously uh, discussed on this podcast, Ryan and I, going back uh, to 2015, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, have been watching long movies together in a sort of improvised uh, group we call the Long Cinema Club. And that essentially uh, is just, you know, us trying to watch really long movies for fun. The stipulation being they have to be at least 200 minutes uh, or longer to qualify Mm -hmm. uh, for our uh, adventures. Yeah, these are all rules that we applied retroactively. Because again, the source of this project just came from us happening to have had seen longer films together because it was a mutual interest and then once we realized it was something that we kept pursuing and looking out for we decided to turn it into a more informal arrangement between us and and also uh, occasionally Alex Sherman uh, has watched several very long films mm-hmm. with us so shout out to him as yes, well. Yes of course from last week's episode of The Pals uh, Alex has also joined us on on some of these long roads through both narrative and documentary and the blending of the two, which is a typical feature of of long cinema because once something sort of exceeds the boundaries prescribed by conventional narrative cinema or even conventional documentary cinema, it sort of creates an object of its own. And I think that's been one of the joys as we've explored long cinema over the years. I would say, too, so much of our friendship was based in the formation of the Long Cinema Club. When I think back to our earliest, my earliest memories of us spending time together, I think the one of the first times that you and I hung out, just the two of us, was watching Satan Tango, Makes and that's sense. a very vivid memory. We had like planned the whole day. We're like, okay, we're gonna like knock out Satan Tango. It's like eight hours. Great. Like we should have a meal, and then Kyle graciously. Uh, put together some delicious chicken paprikash. She did indeed. That's always been another constant throughout the Long Cinema Club is uh, deploying a meal to really rejuvenate us um, throughout the process. And we try to typically have it thematically relate to the film that we're watching, at least whether it be through geographic location or just something that like gets to the heart of, of what we're encountering. And I also have a very vivid memory of that day where one of the ways we were fueling ourselves to keep going through it was we were pounding huge jugs of water in those like Oktoberfest plastic uh, (laughs) jugs basically so we're drinking like liters of water at a time and I, I have a very vivid memory of the final 
hour of Satan Tango that we turned into possibly two hours because we kept running to the bathroom. And I remember at the very end, we were both standing up watching the end of Satan Tango because we knew we would have to like run back to the bathroom. No, I was standing up because I was riveted. Uh, <laughs> sure. Because it's one we of were... the great films. <laughs> and the power of cinema moved me mm-hmm. in its durational form. <laughs> but I do remember because of how often we had to piss watching Satan Tango, I missed the final bus home and I had to take a cab. Yeah. Um, but that's just one of those things that you 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 take on as, as a soldier of the Long Cinema Club. But yeah, it started back in 2015, and we've tried to knock out a couple every year. Yeah, pandemic slowed us down a bit, but I I do think uh, it would be fun. Perhaps, if you are listening to this, you may find this interesting. But I do want to uh, list very briefly, as briefly as I can, uh, all of the long movies that we have watched together uh, going back the last six years. So I think, yeah, we'll, we'll lay out the brief history of, of the Long Movies Club, the Long Cinema Club, the LCC, you know, if you're texting your friends. So, yeah, <laughs> this list is uh, 31 films long, so bear, bear with me. And we're going to list them because uh, we do not have uh, a sort of official record of the order in which we watched them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do have a list, and it, it's been sorted into uh, shortest to longest. Uh, so here is what we've watched in the last six years. Movies over 200 minutes. JFK Director's Cut. Director's Cut, which we actually watched outside during the pandemic, which was very funny because Marsh lives under a flight path. And we, so we did hook up a sound bar outside, but we did occasionally pause just to like accommodate some of the planes that came overhead. Well, I just assumed it was CIA spying on us for doing illicit activity in the backyard, (laughs) like dropping truth bombs about uh, still sealed folks. Yeah. We also watched Jean Dielman on 35mm. At Block Cinema Cinema. in Northwestern. We watched The Mother and the Whore, a very wonderfully unpleasant film. Speaking of wonderfully unpleasant films, we also saw Chelsea Girls in a dual projected 16mm with the audio completely indecipherable. Uh, Completely indecipherable (laughs) and the dual projection was slightly out of sync. One of the projectors had ran out by the end, and I remember going home afterwards thinking that that hadn't been correct and confirming it as such, because the reels can be shifted around and it doesn't matter which ones necessarily, I guess, are side by side. Um, But something was missing. We only had one screen for the final 30 minutes and there was a whole chunk that we we did not witness. The missing reel. The missing reel. But I think that that accurately reflected the experience of how you might have even seen that film at the time it was released, too. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. It was just no rules, you know. <laughs> we also watched Eureka, the Shinji Aoyama film from 2000. We watched The 47 Ronin, the Mitsuguchi film from the 40s. We watched, of course, Till Madness Do Us Part, the 2013 Wang Bing prison documentary. Yeah, there's a few returning heroes <laughs> to the Long Cinema Club, and Wang Bing is is um, is uh, yeah one of the the kings on the list. Speaking of kings, mm-hmm. we also watched Season of the Devil, the 
Lav Diaz acapella musical. We watched, of course, the final film of Hubo, An Elephant Sitting Still from 2018. We watched A Brighter Summer Day once it got a nice new clean re-release without uh, triple subtitles on the VHS rip as I had seen it for (laughs) the first time. So we reaffirmed uh, the greatness of Brighter Summer Day as many people did when it was finally released uh, Mm. in a nice copy. Yeah. We've watched that possibly even more than once together. I remember we saw the Blu-ray and then also caught it at the Siskel Center in Chicago. Yeah, that's a very special film. Good movie. Good movie. As Alex Trebek would say. Uh, We we also (laughs) watched uh, Love Exposure, Cancelled, 2008, Scion Sono. (laughs) We watched La Belle Noisus at the Siskel Center, the great Jacques Rivette film about painting and muses and artists. We watched, more recently, Ludwig, the Lucino Visconti biopic. Yeah, that was our first uh, back inside Long Cinema Club um, in the pandemic, in the in that like beautiful uh, post-vaccination uh, honeymoon. Feeling really good with Ludwig just <laughs> wasting away. Yeah. Uh, we also watched Route One USA, the fantastic Robert Kramer mm-hmm. documentary road trip uh, film. We also watched City Hall, the great Fred Wiseman's 2020 film. Returning champion Lav Diaz, we watched The Halt from 2019, one of my favorite films of probably the last 10 years (laughs) or so. One of the most prescient films that's been released in the last uh, five or 10 years, without a doubt. So good. Uh, We many, several years ago, before it was cool, watched Happy Hour by Hamaguchi. Yeah, before it was streaming on the Criterion channel, we had our own little copy. That's right. Give us credit. Um... (laughs) Here's a film that people still need to see, Homeland Dirac Year Zero from 2015, the Abbas Fidel film uh, about the Iraq invasion from the Iraqis' perspective. Uh, Fantastic movie. A lot of docs on here. Uh, City So Real, the Steve James film from 2020, the epic Chicago Mosaic, also one of my favorite films of recent years. Yeah, and that one's pretty fun, too, because it's also a very literal long cinema release in a way because we were given the first four hours right away um, but then we got a little epilogue it would be nice if we were to get um, an additional epilogue to some of these long cinema films Yeah, um, many of them I think would very effortlessly be able to add one so for if any of the filmmakers are listening uh, consider it just to give yeah. us a little treat look I said this at the time but City So Real should just be constantly funded yeah, by never like, ending the project. city of Chicago <laughs> To document uh, everything. We watched Spiritual Voices, the Sukharov film Mm -hmm. from 1995, a very brooding, poetic documentary about the Soviet uh, invasion of Afghanistan, kind of just like chilling on the border with guys for six hours or whatever. Yeah, yeah, these films are getting longer, folks. Again, we're going in... uh, increasing length order here. Yeah, we can start mentioning the runtimes because Spiritual Voices is 340 minutes. Solid. Not as solid as Frederick Wiseman's Near Death from Mm -hmm. 1989, a 358-minute 
film about dying. Yeah, and I remember that was regrettable because it was being shown on 16mm in Chicago uh, at the Chicago Filmmakers, but it was being shown on Father's Day. <laughs> and I almost got away with convincing myself to be selfish enough to go and do it, but alas, that didn't work out. And then instead, the club got together on our own time and had a lovely experience. Um, and we were able to salute our fathers on the day they deserved. Yeah, and all and our and our greatest father of all, Frederick Wiseman. Yes. More recently, we saw, as many people did, War and Peace in all its restored glory mm-hmm. uh, at Siskel Center. Uh, the aforementioned Satan Tango, what is a long movie club, of course, without Satan Tango, and that was our first film mm-hmm. uh, once we started tracking them together. Uh, we watched. Hitler, a film from Germany by Sieberberg from 1977. I still uh, don't understand what happened in that film. I, no. mean, I, I mean, I know what happened. Yeah, I only have fleeting images from, from that one. Yeah, I just remember like reading the Susan Sontag essay and being like, oh, of course, this all makes sense now. But I, again... It's, I can't remember if it was if it was that film or the one that you're about to mention next that we had like a very delicious bratwurst spread um, <laughs> or just German sausages because then yeah the next film was the Fassbender film eight hours don't make a day and that was really exciting because that was just when the restoration came through and I remember we had been tracking the restoration for a while yeah because we've always you know we're always on the hunt for more films to, to be a part of the project. And that was one I had remembered because I had like a big Fassbender kick and this was still when the film was just completely unavailable. So that was a bit of a celebration when that finally came out. It also brings up uh, uh, an interesting point that we're just going to dispense with here. Some of you may be thinking, but isn't that a television show? And uh, the answer is, who gives a shit if we like it and it's by Fassbender and it's an eight hour long thing? It's a... it's a movie, or it's uh, yeah. <laughs> just worthy of uh, you know being being in here because uh, we got a couple of those coming down the pipe here as we get to our longest movies we've watched: Dead Souls t- from 2018, Wang Bing once again hitting us with uh, eight hours of uh, recalling the crimes of. <laughs> Of the Chinese government. Uh, interesting movie. Of course, we also watched West of the Tracks. And then, yeah, two Wing Bings back to back there on the 2002. list. 2002. Uh, and if I had to pick one film that is a favorite of sorts, quote unquote favorite of the list, it would, it would have to be that one. I think that was the one I was most shook by, the one I s- still think about uh, pretty frequently. And I remember that one being a pretty wild experience because we did see that one in a single day. 551 minutes. In fact, that was the longest film we did in a single sitting. Um, We watched West of the Tracks in one day, and I remember we did not plan ahead for that one, and we did not think about lunch. And at one point, we had just referenced to Kyle, like, hey, do you mind just grabbing us some snacks because we're losers and we didn't, you know, think to, to put anything together. And she brought back, I remember, uh, drumsticks. And we were just, like, we were starving. Just and we were just, ice like, cream. eating ice cream. Watching labor. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually we had, like, a huge spread of Chinese food at the end. And I think that came in, like, seven hours into the movie. Well earned. So, yeah, totally. So that was pretty revelatory and that was uh that was a very physical experience that film uh, on a lot of levels 
We also, like many people, saw the Decalogue uh, sort of restoration re-release whenever that was a couple years ago, 2017 or something, as well as Out One, the classic Jacques Rivette. Some say it's television. Um, the classic Jacques Rivette film, uh, which is very long. Uh, and then our last two, How Yukon Moved the Mountains, the Joris Ivans and... Marceline Loredan Ivan's documentary about China in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And that was more of an episodic film documentary. So we watched that over uh, several viewings, sort of episodically, because it's 763 minutes, yeah. uh, two years worth of these sort of like vin- little vignettes, uh, essentially. Uh, that the Ivans is made. And, and we uh, sort of looped in Tale of the Wind, his yes. um, his sort of auto-portraiture, <laughs> you know. We, we included that as an epilogue to the project because it felt like they were spiritually related. And then, of course, the longest movie we've watched together, as I'm sure many people in recent years, La Flore by Mariano. Linas. Lin- I don't know how to say that. Linas. Mariano Linas. Yeah. Forgive me. <laughs> I remember that one too. We were, if you would to had to qualify any of these as films that defeated us, that was a film we did go into thinking like, what do you think? Can we pull this off in one sitting? Um, and we had attempted to. We started very early. I think we started around six or seven in the morning, and we're like, okay, let's make like a huge breakfast. Um, and then we planned, we had it all planned out and the time mapped out, but, you know, smoke breaks, the limits of the human body, it, it, it didn't work out and we ended up doing it in two. But we made some really great Argentinian steak to yes, go along with did. that movie. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, the, the 31 long movies of Christmas. Uh, put, them on your, put them on your list. I mean, honestly, I enjoy most of the films we just listed and I don't really dislike any of them, though... You know, if I wanted to get controversial, I think probably like War and Peace, Love Exposure. So probably the two worst ones. <laughs> yeah, I would probably say the same. War and Peace. Was... And JFK, no offense to, to Ali, <laughs> but he, he can't really match. Yeah, but when you think about stuff. the scale of all of them, because JFK was only around like 205 minutes and then War and Peace was much longer. So if if you're frustrated with a film that's that much longer, the, the affront feels more extreme. And yeah, I don't even dislike War and Peace. It's an enjoyable watch. It's just, you know, compared to uh, eight hours don't make a day. What are you going to do? You're never going to win with me on that. No. Well, I have a question for you, Ryan. What is it about long movies that you that you like it is a good question because there's a quality to the experience that i think appeals to me not just in the long cinema realm but in like different art forms or even just different life experiences i don't know it's just something that i've always found to be like a part of my personality or interests like for example you like big things i like big things you know (laughs) i'm one of those guys that uh you could disparagingly say reads a ton of like big dick lit um where i like big long postmodern novels i love a book where i'm over 400 pages in and i can still feel the thing in my hand and realize that i'm not even halfway through it and i just got like a giant chunk in in both hands i'm also someone that loves to to hike and I love pushing my body being I'm not like an, a very athletic person 
but I do love pushing myself in those situations because it feels like there's an accomplishment involved with all of it. You know, you could use the the climbing a mountain metaphor to apply both to long cinema or long literature, um, or how Yukong moved the mountains, or how Yukong himself moved moved the mountains. But I think the thing that I find so appealing about it is because of the length and the duration of it. I find it easier to lose myself within the works and appreciate the journey and the details along the way without necessarily always being bogged down and thinking about the whole every step of the way, like the whole of the project. Sometimes watching a 90-minute film, your your brain is sort of coded to, th- to think about certain elements of structure in a specific way. You're like waiting for certain things. You're expecting certain rhythms. And I think sometimes with both long literature or long films, there's a depth to it that allows you to to swim a little bit deeper, to to just appreciate the road you're on. And I think that that's something that I've always been particularly fond of when we've when we've been encountering long films. Absolutely, and I think that's like a great description of the film we watched for this week, mm-hmm. the works and days of. Teyoka Shiojiri in the Shiatani Basin from 2020, directed by C.W. Winter and Anders Edstrom. Um, and before we really get into the film too much, I, I want to just like say my piece as well, right? Which is mm-hmm. like just simply by their their nature, longer films, uh, especially the ones like we've watched, right? They their length allows them to do things that normal movies don't, you know? Uh, and that I appreciate, whether it's whether it is slowness, but not explicitly so, right? To me, mm-hmm. it's not about slowness or whatever, right. but the ability to, yeah, like do something different than what the 90-minute movie can do or what the two-hour movie can do. Having a longer-form thing, obviously, um, as we can tell from all the people obsessed with serialized television, People like it. It's cool, you know. But again, there's obviously like a, a huge distinction between the kind of, uh, you know, crappy serialized storytelling that's on television and, uh, yeah, like a six-hour uh, Chinese documentary, you right. know, you know, or, or something like La Fleur, however you want to categorize right, yeah. that. I mean, that's a daring, you know, it's a daring gambit with story structure. Mm-hmm. Like there isn't that kind of thing going on in, in commercial cinema really, uh, to any meaningful extent. So, uh, it's nice to see, you know, I, I just like that, that adventure, you know, and like mm-hmm. you said, uh, when you're, <laughs> when you start a movie that's eight hours long, looking at your watch is like not even an option. No. You know, thinking about time in a commodified or commercialized way, it just goes out the window completely. So you do, yeah, there's an element of having to submit yourself to it and, and cast aside maybe some things you'd be thinking about in another film. Mm-hmm. You know, like Yeah, honestly, there are times where I'm watching a film that's 90 minutes or two hours. Um, you know, I would say it's especially films that are maybe like, 125 minutes that, that this will happen a to horrible or, run or like 109 minutes something like watch that watch it orders is like 106 oh, okay yeah, I better be yeah, careful I didn't want it to but be. there are, there are times where I'm watching a film and I, I think you know God, how much is left of this fucking thing <laughs> and I, I I press you know display on my remote and it's like oh man 25 minutes give me a break you know and then 
I'm watching one of these films, and you're like, oh, you know, you, you do a big stretch, you're going to think you're going to have a smoke break, and you're like, yeah, we're pretty we're pretty sizably through this thing, right? And we pull it up, and it's like, ooh, four and a half hours, lovely. Yeah. You know, like, that's how much is left. And it's also funny, too, when we watch a film and we pull up the little VLC time code, and we see that um, there's an hour and 40 minutes left, and you... And your first thought is, oh, what a breeze. Great. We're almost oh, yeah. done. <laughs> no problem at all. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and that's another thing that long movies, of course, do is, is, yeah, like we've been talking about, like reorients your sense of time. It gives you a different impression and feeling of time than is the typical compressed classical style mode of, of filmmaking where it's all about compressing time and pace and boom, 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 all this shit happens, right? So um, just, yeah, kind of that unfamiliar mm -hmm. uh, uses of time and, and experiences of time in long movies, I find to be, yeah, just generally pleasurable. Very appealing. And the whole thing feels like an accomplishment and it turns it turns the, <laughs> as much as an accomplishment sitting on your ass for well, eight yeah. straight hours can be well, yeah to be and to <laughs> at least be engaged with it for that long and i mean i guess the 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 thing i enjoy the most about it too is it just it feels like an event to do yeah. it together yes. um it turns the regular movie going experience um into something that that even if we're doing it at home feels like an event it feels like something that's memorable and that will like linger on uh well after we've we've finished with the the runtime itself yeah listen folks you don't have to go see the latest tentpole film to have an event film in your life just get four to five of your closest friends and say this saturday hitler a film from germany <laughs> 1977 you know what are you up to we're gonna look into the dark past no, um. <laughs> you know one thing we've long talked about doing that we've never implemented is like an exercise routine that gets paired with the film at least like setting you up you want to do calisthenics honestly i mean to, i think we would be able to plow through a lot more if we were like doing stuff while we we did it i mean because there's a few films that we've considered that we've never actually jumped into like as we've talked about wang bing there's crude oil which is i mean you know it's like 14 hours but it's, it's not really a movie not really a film it doesn't necessarily fit um <laughs> but it is at the same time you know there's there's a challenge there that's presented and that's a film i've always thought like if we do this one you know we we need another activity to go with it i just need to be outside yeah. If we're watching crude oil. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, one of these days we will watch Rissan, The Journey, the Peter Watkins film. Yeah. And that day we will achieve world peace. Yeah, that is the biggest, if you want to say, blind spot of the long cinema. At least one we have been so afraid of and enticed by. That is the film that whenever we're like, are we finally going to watch Rissan? And we haven't done it yet. But it, it will happen. But it'll be, it almost might be one of those moments where after we watch it, we, we think what's left. Yeah, so we'll shut down the club. Yeah, that's know. one of the reasons it's sort of like held at a, at a just out of reach. And if anyone's going to convince us that watching movies is a waste of time, it'll probably be Peter Watkins. Yes. You know? Or just ourselves by doing this to our, our bodies so often. 
So this week, Ryan and I, while Andy is still away on special mission, decided to get together over the holidays here and have ourselves a a, a long movie club, as I mentioned, uh, watching the works and days. And should mention too this is yeah this is the first time uh, you've been in person on the gauntlet for a uh, while in quite a while you've been to me simply uh, just a head that appears on my laptop once a week <laughs> yeah. uh, to spout a bunch of bullshit you know <laughs> um it's nice to see you uh in studio b yeah yeah good, good to be back good to be just sitting on my ass looking at a screen uh with with my pal that's right. So, uh, yeah, let's let's talk about our movie here. This is, uh, I guess, you know, pretty pretty exciting that a uh, an epic, self consciously sort of stylized long movie uh, came out. You know, we've had a couple couple of the last couple years, and uh, as long movie lovers, we like to keep up with the with the new epics. And yeah. uh, so we thought, you know, instead of watching Rasan the Journey, uh, we would watch, yeah, something more contemporary, and maybe uh, people will listen to uh, this podcast <laughs> yeah. more, you know? Um, so we might as well start by uh, trying to describe the uh, film <laughs> that we watched, uh, which we should mention is 480 minutes, about exactly eight hours. And the film was designed with several intermissions and uh, a lunch break to uh, fit the eight-hour workday. Which I I should say we were very close to replicating. We, we tried our best to experience the film as designed but one thing led to another and we had to get some firewood um before some people came over so we had to save about an hour of it for later but we were still at the very least fitting the film into the regular working hours schedule and did have a big lunch um as as designed as we were on our podcast grind you know the characters in this film aren't the only ones out there working and and dazing if you know what i'm saying so the film as the title suggests the works and days of taoko shiojiri in the shiotani basin so that technically should tell you everything you need to know about this movie yeah it is loosely about and around this woman who is a farmer in this particular basin outside of Kyoto. And the film is divided, like we said, not only into intermissions, but also in chapters that don't perfectly line up with the intermissions. So there's even a bit of a sort of scrambling in in the experience. As much as the film purports to be a, a, a linear kind of event you're witnessing, it is... Most definitely not. And and I don't think the filmmakers are trying to conceal it, but they are and they aren't. It's kind of really, anyway, this is a hard film to talk about. Yeah, it's a complex film, uh, much more so than I was expecting. Not that I had too many expectations going in, but there were certain things about the film that were so natural to absorb and fall into its rhythms and get extremely comfortable with the viewing experience. But then it's also a film that, 
I can't quite get out of my head as I'm trying to arrange it in some sort of cohesive way that I can make sense of it. And I just think that speaks to the power of it. Okay, here's the concrete facts. And and some of this is in the film and implicit in the film, and some of it, you know, uh, may not have explicitly been in the film, but learned by reading a little bit about it. Yeah, we use some <laughs> cheat codes for, yeah. for this film. Ryan Swen, thank you for uh, your wonderful write-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, learned a lot uh, from that simply. I mean, again, and I think it's built into the film that the film is, in a way, a a document of its own making. Yes. Um, And we should say right out, the film appears to be a documentary, but it is not, right? And by appears to be, right, it is not heavily narrative. It's has a, a somewhat documentary aesthetic, although more in line with, like, James Benning uh, documentary aesthetic than, you know, a Wang Bing or someone else like mm-hmm. that, right? Very mm-hmm. kind of composed documentary aesthetic. But the film is a fiction, but it also, of course, intersects with real things and real people that uh, they're filming and that they know. And so the general setup is this, to clear up any confusion. The film centers on Teoko, and she is the mother-in-law of the co-director and cinematographer Anders Edstrom. And so this is a family film in that sense. And um, in fact, their Winter and Edstrom's previous film had focused on Edstrom's mother. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I think, again, it speaks to the kind of projects they're interested in that are sort of begin with these tangible things. People we know, places we've been, right? Mm-hmm. So the filmmakers had been, you know, visiting Shiatani for a long time, right? Because the family lives there and everything. And they thought we should make a film about this place and these people and really just started very basically like that from people they know and love family Mm -hmm. members Uh, and so they had prepared to make a film especially uh, at a certain point Teoko's husband Junji was diagnosed terminally ill and this is when they were preparing the film and they had thought they were going to film like the last sort of year of his life would be part of the film amongst all the other goings on of the Shiatani Basin. But he ended up dying just before they began production. And so the film then took that as like a jumping off point to then both move forward with the project, but also kind of look backwards with its uh, participants. Mm -hmm. So in the film, we are following Teoko, playing herself. She's like a 60, 70-year-old farmer (laughs) in this valley whose husband is very sick. And in the film, her husband is played by an actor, or at least a non-professional actor, playing her husband. So... To describe it, it's basically like her hus- in real life, her husband died, and then they spent the next two years making a film that essentially takes place over that previous year. Yes. It chronicles the, the final year of the husband's life, and it ends up, by its nature, sort of being this parallel reality where she's able to think about the past year and re-experience the past year in a way where she can say things that she wished she had said or to then relive moments that she found to be exceptionally special um, from that past year. And the whole film then with that bit of context that 
you know, we we discovered halfway through the film, but I think probably if you went in blind would become clear, at least emotionally, in the final third. I think it adds an exceptional amount of emotional weight to the entire thing. And it really, I, I, I can't remember ever seeing a film that feels like this. I mean, it is a film of healing. It's a film of, it, it is almost a film of art therapy, thinking back on... Um, Procession. Procession, yeah. the new Robert Greene film, which is also like still yeah. floating around in I my head. I don't think there's like dissimilar things going on here mm-hmm. because it's very clearly like, yeah, she, Teoko gets, and, and the neighbors and family members who are also like participating in this film, right? They get to, yeah, pay their respects or say what's on their mind or tell stories about their lives mm-hmm. uh, in the context of this film. And it's actually, you know, Something that really struck me early on is there's this conversation in a car. And this is a very notable sequence in the film because the conversation, it's it's the camera is in the back seat and there's two characters in the driver's seat and passenger seat. The camera's in the back seat. And this is a very notable scene for its uh, unique approach to the sound design because we hear bird noises as a conversation is then played out for us in subtitles. And it's this conversation between an older man and a younger man. And the older man is talking about his father who had been sent to Iwo Jima to fight during World War II, uh, being conscripted into the army. And he talks about how his his father in the army got malaria, and so he wasn't able to fight. Uh, and it's this crazy story where he tell you know, his father had a dream about an eggplant and went out into the forest and uh, found an eggplant, and it saved him from dying of malaria. And also he was too sick to have to go to the front lines. Right. And so essentially being like, yeah, I'm here today because, you know, my, my father got malaria during World War II uh, in Iwo Jima. And he, he then tells the story of what happened when his father came back to the valley. And his, his grandfather had died while his father was away at war. And so when his father came back to their hometown, he discovered that his dad was dead and they went and dug up the body. And allegedly it was like in perfect condition. It hadn't decomposed and it had been buried for like a while. And they dug up the body so the son could tell his father that he returned home from the war and he was alive. And then they reburied it. And that scene, apart, you know, the striking sort of audio stuff going on made me be like, this is important. You know, that's when right. we really started being like, yeah. okay, what is this film about? You know? And to me, right, it's about resurrecting the dead. And it's about being in in commune with the dead and talking to the dead, or maybe not even the dead, but just like everything in the fucking world, mm-hmm. you know. It's interesting how you mentioned that, that it's it was the fact that you couldn't hear the dialogue and that it was the birds that is what drew just like cued you as an audience member to put extra specific attention on that scene because one of the things that I think this film succeeds in so well is never quite giving preferential treatment to any details at all in the narrative. The narrative is treated with the same, you could either say importance um, or lack of importance as any shots that are more atmospheric or at least trying to present an image, a full, vivid picture of this environment. And it is in that moment when we don't have 
dialogue, it felt like a stylistic flourish that you wouldn't find really anywhere else in the film. They're not doing anything that radical to change the way your brain is processing the information. And because of that, I do agree with you. I think that that conversation is presented in a way to be the thematic heart of the film. And it was, as I said, you know, we had sort of used cheat codes while watching because this is something that happens all the time with the Long Cinema Club. When we're maybe four hours into something, three or four hours is usually when we finally admit to each other, you know, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So who are they? Who are they? You know, we realized, like, we, th- we assumed we would figure it out as we went on, you know, the relationships amongst everyone. And we're like, okay, we need to, like, have a little powwow. That's the nice thing about the Long Cinema Club at home is when we can explore some of the finer details sitting side by side. And, and that was when we did read a little bit. We had, like, kind of paused the film, reflecting, trying to parse out what we had encountered so far. And we had read Ryan Swen's piece that kind of gave us some background information. And then all of a sudden that scene that my brain had interpreted as extremely important kind of came back to the surface. And then I was immediately applying it to the image that we were seeing at that moment, which was just after the husband had been bedridden and Tayoko was tending to him and she sort of like leaves the room and is sitting by herself. And it is this overwhelmingly beautiful and sad image of her kind of coming to terms or at least just reflecting on the fact that her husband is about to die. And then once we had that biographical information of this was an active recreation of something that had just happened so recently, and we were witnessing both a woman who had just experienced grief performing, quote unquote, performing the expectation of grief, and then thinking about that idea of resurrection, about bringing up the body and confronting them saying, I survived. And that there is this poetry almost of her, this film being a way of her saying, I survived what has happened to both of us this past year. And And her whole life. And her whole life. Honestly, because it is a, it was a life of work. I mean, yeah. it's clear. And it's revealed, you know, in a conversation she has at some point in the movie in one of the sort of like group drinking or post-dinner scenes that we see glimpses of. She talks about how she had, you know, wanted yeah. to go to college, wanted a professional life, wanted all this stuff. And ultimately, because of her parents and because of society, she was a wife and a farmer for her entire life, you know, and there were things unfulfilled, irrespective of all that stuff, you know? Right. Yeah, I think it's worth also then mentioning, like, <laughs> that's the like the, the quote-unquote narrative setup, right? And we yeah. should emphasize that the narrative elements of this film are basically are non-existent. They're slippery, yeah. You know, because even in the case of them casting people to play either her dead husband or other people in the film it still mostly feels right like a documentary or at a remove mm. right um which is especially perplexing um obviously when you see uh rio kase the uh japanese actor from abbas kiristami and scorsese films and hong sang su and you're like oh I know this guy. Okay, this film's fiction. Um, But then he's never, like, given us a scene or, like, a moment of importance. He's just, like, a background character, this famous actor. And that also, you know, for guys like us, you know, like, his presence is meant to cue us in to be like, 
this is fiction, right? To remind yeah. us that this mm-hmm. is fiction. This is this is a famous actor. This guy was in a Clint Eastwood movie. What's he doing in the Shiatani Basin? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the thing. The film is so de- deceptive in its narrative because it feels so real. Yes, it feels so observational, and it. I do think it was important to have a recognizable performer in there to keep reminding you of that fact. There are so many observational conversations, so many shared drinks and meals where they're sitting around, and it is just so relaxed that, you know, whether it was strictly scripted or not is sort of besides the point, but his presence there reminds you, like, this still is a narrative construct. Like, all of this has been arranged. Everyone here, despite potentially playing versions of their real lives selves, are still acting. They are conscious of the performance. They know that they're representing something in everything they're saying, even if it feels effortless because they are all lifelong friends or living in the same village. Yeah, and there's like a a tightness to the community that, again, it's like there's so many people in this film that just come and go. Like this town, this little like town that she lives in in this valley, there's like 70 or something people that like live in the immediate area and they all know each other and they're all sharing with each other. They're all helping each other at various points and people are just like popping in and out of the movie. Like I had no idea who anyone was but like it didn't really matter but what matters is yeah like what you take away from these little interactions right and a lot of it is just like yeah this kind of like old style small community that helps each other and the implicit like where are the kids where are the teenagers who's going to carry on this way of life you know like Mm -hmm. that sort of you know kind of like brought up a little bit but not really and just like this is you know the old way of living and you can see like the benefits and the beauty of this simplicity and this caring i mean when her husband gets sick people are always popping in dropping stuff off like talking checking in um it's just really like yeah this communal vibe and so you like despite not knowing who the fuck anyone is in this movie and not really properly being introduced to them as such uh you still again you get the camaraderie you get the friendship the familial bonds and all that stuff the heart is there even if the specifics are are vague as to the viewer. Yes. Um, emotionally, the film feels clear. And I actually thought that that was one of that was something that was so special about it was while we were watching, it, I would reflect after like if I was trying to piece something together in my head, I would realize that, oh, am I lost? Because there were so many details that I couldn't make clear to myself but while watching I didn't feel that restlessness that sometimes happens when I am watching something so opaque that I become confused and lost and then get frustrated trying to think like how can I put this together you know it's been thrown around a lot that it's very immersive and that it's sort of just immersive cinema in general but I think it's emotionally immersive beyond the fact that it has a dense soundscape of the environment and there is a lot of attention paid to both small like micro and macro details of the spaces around the home it was that emotional clarity and that emotional immersion that kind of made me feel as if i was floating through the whole film 
And it, it, it really did feel like it was reflecting real life because there are, of course, a few important narrative moments that feel shocking when they do come up, like the terminal illness or when his illness is getting worse or visiting the clinic's office when like they learn about it and just various things amongst people in the town. And it kind of has that uncanny shock of a real life event when you do kind of fall into the rhythms of the everyday, all of a sudden something real happens to you and it changes the way you're living day to day. And they handle it so delicately um, in a way that I haven't really seen in another film because of that kind of distance with the prescriptions of a narrative like this. Because they, I still don't think they're distant observers and I don't think that their presence is distant. Their presence is felt so often. And, you know, we are, we're, we're very close with them, even when we're getting, you know, wider shots of them framed by the, the interiors or the homes. We feel like we're right there with them. And they just keep a distance to what you would expect from a narrative like this to the point where it does feel overwhelmingly real. To me, that's the poetic quality of the film and the poetic quality of life, yes. right? Like yeah. this film, and very self-consciously so, I think they described it as like a Georgic, you know, like a peasant poem, like a farmer's poem, which is like mm. a specific Greek, you know, style of the ode to the... Ode to the Farmer, you know? And we should mention that, like, yeah, we've been talking about the narrative elements and the character elements, but most of the shots in this movie don't have people in them. Most of the shots in this movie are, like, well-composed shots of nature. But to your point about, like, the emotional clarity, this is one of those films when you go, like, am I lost? No, because what I'm looking at is actually what's going on in the film. And that could be like the way they would shoot a landscape or a cloud or water that is commenting on the narrative action emotionally or like fitting these transitional moments. And I think there's like a key thing that other people have brought up as well, which is like the nature landscape shot element of this film is not the long uh, or like the slow cinema part of this film. The shots of nature are quite short Mm -hmm. and it's usually the more narrative or character conversations that like go on for a long time. So again, to clarify, like this isn't slow cinema, but it is like meditative cinema. Yeah. That's a really good point because I don't want to presume what the filmmakers would say to me if I had told them any of what I'm saying, but I feel as if I told, if I had told them while watching it, like if I paused it and looked over at Anders or CW winter and just said like, Hey, I'm confused. I could see them saying, no, you're not. Yeah. Because what you're seeing is that's just, that's it. Yes. And that's, it's up to you to deal with. Um, if you're confused about. Yeah, because it's not of, even like symbolic. It's emotional, you know, to watch, yeah. uh, to watch, a, you know, a shadow just cover a mountain. You know, and how that makes you feel, right, after seeing X, Y, Z, right? You know, it's very carefully calibrated, this film, you know? Yeah, I was really, I mean, maybe it was just because we watched this final chunk this morning, but having, there was so much attention, I felt, to the way that morning light casts shadows on trees um, in the final hour of the film in the landscape shots, because it was it was just after the funeral. And 
I've always just been so moved whenever I see the, the morning light hitting like a bunch of pine and, and the shadows almost feel blue. They don't feel black uh, because the light is so much softer and diffused. And after the funeral, that's what is suddenly preferential in the environmental shots. There's so much of that morning glow on everything and it does feel like the dawn of a new day and there is something that feels very positive um, and and healing about that after well, we should, experiencing a funeral. We should also say that, yeah, the film does have like the seasonal structure. So it starts at right. the end of the harvest and then goes all the way through Junji's death and the yeah. end of another harvest, right? Mm. So it's basically like the full harvest cycle is depicted in the film. And yes, I did on Twitter make a, a Stardew Valley joke about <laughs> this movie because at times it is kind of like, you know, for all the, I'm sure for how hard, you know, Teo's life is, I'm so like, God, this looks amazing. This little like Stardew Valley allotment in this, you know, basin mm-hmm. outside Kyoto. Like, I, I take me there. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'll retire. <laughs> you know, I'll the, go help her. There's a beauty to the idea that your troubles are just the, the state of your daikon. You yeah, know, and their and daikon is fucking huge. Big daikon. They had a big daikon. Yeah, harvest. there's there's one of the characters mentions that uh, the the daikon is bigger than my leg. I can't believe how big they are this year. So, well, then, okay, so this brings in my other, like, idea of what this movie is about, because we were joking that all the all the letterbox reviews are like, it's about surfaces. <laughs> um, and I disagree. It's not about yeah, surfaces. 100%. It's actually uh, a film about ecosystems right to mm-hmm. me that's what it's about and that's what like the form is showing us is a space with people a space without people like a shot of nature a shot of nature with people a shot of a person you know and how all these things affect each other and that's another thing that i think is slyly reinforced in some of the conversations that are had in the film like remember when they're talking about like the fish and they're like Oh yeah, like they ate all the moss, so like the fish are you know they're they're no longer here or whatever. And there are conversations about oh how the trees have changed over the years, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. When they talk to that forestry guy, and so everyone, of course, because they are like people who work the land for the most part, right? They have a connection to the earth, to the land, how it affects things, how other animals affect each other, how they affect trees. Again, the ecosystem, right? That's really and, good, yeah, because there's also, yeah, as you're saying, there's scenes dedicated to them responding to the threat of their environment or and then trying to control it because of that. And throughout, people are being bit by vipers. Yeah. We get little t- town meetings where they talk about someone who's you know recently walked away with a, a viper bite and there's another sequence where early in the morning a group of men go to where they've captured a, a wild boar that's presumably been causing something that they deemed you know damaging to the, the that ecosystem and they kill the wild boar yeah. on screen and I guess I would just say I agree with you. Yeah, because thinking of like, you know, it's like the family unit as a system, the town as a, a system, mm-hmm. and then like the valley as a system. And all of these things are shown to, yes, be in interaction with one another. And, and I mean, it's part of too, right? If this is the, some kind of farmer poem, right? You know, like the people we're seeing too are, are old school and old for the most part. Like mm-hmm. there's a guy who says... Uh, 
people should butcher things themselves so they understand life. <laughs> and you're like, damn right, dude, for sure. You yeah. know, I'm just sitting on my ass in America watching this movie. You know, I've never butchered an animal. I'm, you know, I'm going to get the prepackaged garbage from, you know, whatever corporation feeds it to me, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, there is an element of that, of, yeah, people who are obviously a lot more in touch with the land than uh, your, your average uh, 21st century citizen, yes. you know? And I think, too, like, <laughs> just to single out, again, like, some of the cl- clues to the form, I mean, they're they're right there for you. There are uh, little poems that are cited at the beginning of every chapter. And I was just, like, really, really vibing with the first one because it, it, like, announced the movie. And the, the quote is, uh, from one basin to another, stuff and nonsense. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I get it. And, and like, yeah. that's how the film proceeds. It's it's stuff and nonsense. It's, like, a full survey of this geographic space. You know, that's kind of, like, the limit of what they're working with. If you think of, like, Wiseman going, like, well, I always limit myself to an institution or, like, a geographical space, the canal zone or whatever. Yeah. And very clearly here, they're like, yeah, it's this is a film about this valley as much as it's about the works and days of Teoko Shiojiri. It's about the Shiatani Basin and its people at large, right? So, God, there's, again, it's a fucking eight-hour film, so there's so much that just builds and you see and they show you, you know, so, like, without getting bogged down in, uh, you know, all the little <laughs> details and things that happen in this movie. Do you um, have any particular favorite nonsense that's in the film? I mean, the film opens really strong with a very amusing, you know, conversation of a bunch of people sitting having some drinks talking about the threat of uh like they're like some guy we knew's penis turned white yeah like a spectral white penis um and i i appreciated it opening with um something of such like good good cheer and good humor like that um because that's the thing too there's sometimes long cinema has a very austere quality to it and i think that there was some there was warmth presented right away with this film so you wouldn't mistake the presentation of the ecosystem, as you had said, as being cold. And you could treat everything in the film as warmth. Yeah, I really liked when that woman, uh, I forget her name, she kind of pops up a couple times, but she's she's really hammered. Yeah. Uh, and she's just like, I'm drunk, when they're all hanging out at dinner. Like, yeah, there was like these really good, you know, post-conversation moments that I liked. You know, I guess like I, I did like when the film broke the, from the rhythms of the basin because the film does for the purpose of showing like doctor stuff dealing with Junji's illness um all of a sudden you're just like in Kyoto yeah you know and that's like very shocking um as it's shocking you know early in the film in the first winter sequence like all of a sudden like a plow like snowblower thing goes yeah. by and just like destroys you know the mood of the movie because <laughs> it's so quiet and also as such a sound forward film you had you had said so as well Ryan like this is again a sound design like first movie almost it's a masterclass yeah. i mean it's just unbelievable <laughs> the soundscape is so dense and it does something really cool too when when it's leaving an intermission we're given a sequence over a black screen that sort of becomes it's like a musical overture but without actual music um and the sound design is very different in those those moments when the screen is black because naturally the sound design that they're creating around 
all the shots of the ecosystem and the environment are they feel specific they feel like the animals you're probably hearing you know whether they were actually captured at the same time as the images were i i actually doubt it but when we're when it is those moments those just after the intermission the overture for the individual chapter it is just it's so delicate and beautiful how the sounds of the environment are arranged in a way that feels like a, my, a small piece of music. Mm -hmm. And it really does set the tone then for what comes in each season of the harvest. Absolutely. I also like, you know, the, the sort of like media, what little media there is woven in. Yeah. Uh, of course, throughout the film, we uh, hear Tayoka reading from real life diary entries of the last year of her husband's life. And she talks about, of course, as many people have remarked upon, she talks about watching Tokyo Story and reflecting upon the sadness of getting old. Yeah. You know, she says... It's sad to get old in any era. Oh, that's and so nice. Yeah. I know. And uh, she watches a lot of, like, I don't know what's, I don't know if they're playing Mahjong or Go or whatever they're playing on TV. I think it's Go. I think they say Go. Yeah, well, the one guy brings up Go. Either oh, way, they're, like, okay. watching people play board games on television. Um, but one thing that I loved in the background that Ryan uh, pulled out his phone to Shazam, a Japanese pop song uh, that's playing. I was one of less than 500 people that have Shazammed that specific song. And it's like, you can't really tell what's going on in the scene. It's like a shot that's sort of pointing down at the ground, and I think they're around like a shrine or a grave or something. Mm -hmm. And it appears to be some kind of gathering, and you're just like looking at people from the waist down, but all these children keep running into the frame and out of it. They're like chasing each other and breaking up the image. But there's like a Jap an older Japanese pop song playing, and we were like, God damn, what is this amazing song? Uh, and Ryan looked it up, and it's called like, you you know, Nani Wabushi, which basically translates to like sad songs. Uh, and again, to think of, yes, this is, you know, this film is a sad song as much as it's also, yeah, like a poetic farming thing. Yeah, and it's that song, you know, when you play the song back in your head, the song I'm referring to is the film. Um, after having experienced it and thinking about so many of the details, there are so many like retroactive pleasures. Um, or at least insights that you get on the film. It really does live on in, in your head once it's over. And, you know, when I, when I went to bed after having watched um, seven and a half hours, and I was thinking about how the film does, you know, its natural ending point would be the death of the husband. And because that was the reality, there are plenty of scenes in the film, you know, quote unquote scenes, where they are visiting a cemetery. And the film does not make it clear or just refuses to give you any specifics as to whose grave they're visiting. And so, you know, it's one of those things that's really incredible where within the narrative of the film, if you're treating it as a chronological narrative, which can be debated, but if you are treating it as a chronological narrative, you're thinking, oh, they're just visiting the graves of people who've died in the past. But in reality, you know, the husband had died in the past, had died the year prior. And those moments are, I think, you know, very implicitly um, them visiting his grave whenever things become maybe too real or too emotional for just the film project in general. Yeah, I think it's like, you know, not the only time, but one of the times in the film where you feel the 
present and the past existing at like the exact same time, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Because, yeah, I mean, one of the, we read one of the first things they filmed was the funeral. It was a real funeral. um, And it was one of the first things they shot, but obviously it comes near the end of the film. And the, the quality of time is very elusive throughout, you know, the chronology is, is not clear. There were definitely times where I thought, you know, have we jumped very far into the past or are we maybe even looking ahead towards the future beyond this film if that's not a contradictory thing to say and it's 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 again as we've talked about with the virtues of long cinema and the ability to surrender yourself to those sorts of things that I think would be significantly harder to communicate in a film that has a runtime that's significantly shorter Um, that's what makes these experiences so unique. And, you know, this is the kind of film where you're watching and if you, maybe if you, you get so relaxed, you, you drift off to sleep for a little bit. It's sort of like what Kiarostami says, you know, oh, the great films that can, can make you fall asleep in a theater. And it's, it has that warmth throughout, but it also has that power to, um, make your mind go in so many different directions and sort of create a web of its own, both of your own life, of the film's life, of the, the, the real life outside of the film, everything. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, I really like to, I want to mention, you know, the film was shot uh, on a digitally on a black magic, um, but it's a like a one five aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. So it's like kind of boxy, which I was just actually reflecting, you know, the, the film, because it was released with that, it's released with a photo book, like a monograph of photos. It, it was more of a photographic aspect ratio. Yeah. That maybe, you know, I, I can't say with any confidence because I didn't look it up, but perhaps that's typically the, the shape of the photos that they would take when they were taking photographs there. Could be. Yeah. Um, and I did want to remark, yeah, again, about falling asleep, especially because there's a lot of darkness in this film. And they are, I, I love their confidence in like pushing a digital camera just to the absolute brink, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, because some of the scenes are just all digital noise from just the, the black no light uh, sort of like vibe going on, but maybe a spe- like a little light in the distance or maybe just a vaguest shadow of, of something, you know, and they're not afraid to go there, which is to say that, yeah, if you were outside in their little farming, you know, t- town, you wouldn't see shit, you know, like, and they're just going out there with a, with a black magic and shooting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, like everything is, is just beautifully composed and shot and thoughtful. And this film succeeds on a very basic level, right? Which is Scott, the wind in the trees, you know? Yep. And it's yep. like, it's got that. And it is this quality of, you know, always, uh, always different, always the same. You know, we we were even remarking mm-hmm. during the viewing that they refused to sort of give in to motifs, or they refused to develop like consistent patterns that will tell us more. Instead, it's like it it feels like every shot is new, and they do reuse some angles but they're different seasons and they're not making a point of it either they're not like trying to compare and contrast no and that's what's something that really i think distinguishes this film from a lot of the narrative 
films we've watched as a part of the Long Cinema Club because I think that it is a useful tool that a lot of them have used to ground the viewers is to sort of have spaces they return to and sometimes those spaces are truly just frames and shots. You know, it kind of grounds you into some sort of rhythm or some sort of um, like understanding of where you are in this unwieldy thing, this film that exceeds five hours. It's if you have spaces that like, ah, yes, like we have been here before, the camera was placed like this, um, you can sort it sort of helps you kind of piece together the entire experience in your head. And this film doesn't do that. It really does feel like each image is a new thing, a new experience, a new way of looking at the space around you. Yeah, because even if it's the same shot that was used four hours earlier, it's in like a totally different light, in a totally different season, in a totally different emotional context, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, And they're not doing it to call back in so much as they're just in the same space. So like naturally, she's going to walk down this road or, or... go to her allotment and, you know, you know, mm-hmm. start planting seeds or whatever. You yeah, know? if there's any, like, exact replicas of shots, it was an accident. Like, that is clear throughout the film. It's really and what again, it seems it, like. Yeah, know? and it should be, I mean, it's just such an achievement because, as we said, the shots are brief. The shots of all of these spaces aren't, aren't there for very long. So, I mean, it's a ton of images that they had to produce on their own over the few years that they were making it. Um, it's incredibly impressive. Absolutely. (laughs) One last thing I want to highlight that I found, you know, to be the emotional core of the film. Uh, There's like one scene where Teo and her uh, dying husband go to this garden uh, that he really likes. And they just have this conversation about their relationship. And again, to remind you all, it's an actor playing her, or, or a family friend <laughs> yeah. acting as her now deceased husband. And it's just this incredibly simple conversation scene. And it's just so emotional, again, knowing the, you know, the, the, the story behind the film and getting her to basically just be like, this is what I loved about you, you know? This is, oh, those early years were tough, but we were great. Like, you were a really good husband. You know, just this, like, really simple her, you know, saying goodbye to him. And then that's, again, kind of like, I don't want to say mirrored because it's not deliberate, but when it gets to the part where Junji dies, like, seven hours into the movie, uh, there's this beautiful shot in this, like, dim uh, funeral home sort of, like, setting uh, where she's talking, I guess, to her daughter or someone or someone who knows. Yeah. I don't know who anyone is in this movie. Um, but she is basically like having a conversation of like how to write a eulogy and like what she should say. But we're seeing her like rehearsing her eulogy before she gives it. Uh, and at one point she just goes, Junji's life was about jazz and drinks. <laughs> and she's like, that's good, right? That's all I have to say, you know, or whatever. <laughs> like, she wants to keep it really simple, you know, also being like, everyone knows him. Like, what am I, you know, how am I going to eulogize this? But that spills over into after the funeral when there's like a drunken conversation of everyone being like, funeral speeches shouldn't be fluent. If you're up there talking like a politician at a funeral, like, that's bad. A funeral speech should be fucked up and, like, disoriented and not told in a normal way or whatever. And again, I was reflecting back on the film and thinking, right, like, 
this is a film about grief and, and the death of her husband for not just her, but for the filmmakers who are her family members, right? One of them anyway, and the entire extended, you know, family and community who know her and her husband who's just passed. So, of course, the film doesn't take the fluent, easy approach at dealing with these emotions, right? Just as is reflected, like, in this conversation where it should be, you know, something rougher, you know, or something more inscrutable or more emotional, you know. Those two scenes that you've brought up, the scene when she's trying to work through her eulogy and then the scene when she's talking to her husband through this actor about what she loves about him. Those are two of the examples when I was sort of trying to get at this idea where this film has this immersive emotional quality to it. And then when something feels narrativized in a way that we narrativize our lives as like an event that we will remember, those two scenes are, I think, are really great examples of that because they hit a little bit different. They they strike you in a, a narrative way, quote-unquote narrative way, because they feel like a scene someone could have written. But because it's bookended by all of these written scenes that have this very realistic kind of flow to them um, in an observational way, the power was just a little bit different. And it, yeah, I... I that's the scene that, of the many images and scenes in this film that will never be able to leave my mind, it, the, the scene when she tells her husband why she loves him, how much he's meant to her over the years, and how she feels about their relationship, um, that's, that's something I'll never be able to shake. Because it really does feel like someone, whether this is the case or not, it feels like someone being given the opportunity to tell someone everything they weren't able to say, to finally get out the words that they never had the chance to share with their partner or their loved one. And the scene is arranged in such a in such a beautiful way where he's sitting there and he rarely speaks. It's, you know, the, the actor playing Junji has lines throughout the film. I mean, not as much once he's terminally ill, but when she is unloading all of this and sharing all of this, the actor himself almost, it, he almost feels more like the actor in that moment for the audience, at least for me, as of my subjective experience, he felt more like an actor who was respectfully sitting there to let her deal with this. That, that was a scene that really felt like art therapy. Um, because for so much of it too, she doesn't look directly at him and I'm not necessarily, you know, that might not be signifying anything in particular, but she is just so deep in thought and, and it seems as if she's thinking about what, what she could have said to him. And yeah, I, I think that kind of, it relates to everything we've talked about, this act of resurrection, this, this way of communicating with the dead to sort of work through regrets, um, and to just reflect on a life lost. And also on the lives that go on in exactly. the present, you know? Right. Because again, speaking to this idea of examining an, an ecosystem, right? Like the f structure of the film itself is a cycle, you know? Mm -hmm. So again, if you're looking at the bigger picture, especially thinking about nature and our relationship to it, right? It's like, yes, everything is cyclical, you know? Everything dies, but everything is born, you know, or reborn. Um, so there's that element uh, to it as well. Yeah, uh, very, 
Very long movie. Very long movie. Um, a very rich film. And it's not that often I'm right? finishing one of the long ones that I think about watching it again um, for at least in the foreseeable future. You know, you sort of treat them as this event and this experience that you sort of internalize and then kind of, you know, kind of mull over over time. And, and this is one that I think has enough mysteries in its narrative that become clear by the end that I think would be enhanced by a second viewing. And I'm, I'm looking forward to experiencing it again at some point. I'd love to see it in a theater. Definitely. So yeah, this was fun. It was great to, <laughs> to, to hop on the long cinema train again. Uh, it'll never die as long as long films keep getting made. And uh, yeah, I hope our listeners enjoy this sort of stocking stuffer uh, it's sort of like a postmodern stocking stuffer it's like a shorter gauntlet episode but one about a much longer film it's just it's the space within the smaller spaces is actually much larger um whoa, whoa. <laughs> but um uh next week we are we our, our dear friend andy will be back and we're going back to the original format. Yeah, we're, we're back to double features. So don't, don't fret. Just enjoy this little snack um, uh, this holiday season. And, um, you know, Andy was listening when he was away. And he, he had a lot of fun listening to the Pals episode and thinking about Pals and all our friendships. But, you know, our guy Andy, naturally, he wants to come back and stir up the pot. So he's as a counter to the pals, Andy has proposed that next week we look at a film about rivals and rivalries. It's rivalry week, baby. See you then. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Happy New Year.
してみてたら、いいのなんかものを言ってるみたいやね。